You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Good morning. Welcome uh, back to Living Way Church. Uh, before I jump into today's sermon, I wanted to invite those of you who are family and friends of Living Way Church that as soon as this video is over, we will be starting another live video that will be going over Living Way's reboot strategy. It will be uh, open Q&A. So those of you that are friends and family of Living Way would like to join us for that. When this video is over, uh, this video will end, and then you just click on the other live video, same YouTube web channel, and uh, follow along. I hope that you stay through to that because today we'll be sharing some important updates on what our church will be doing in the process of potentially reopening. So we have been in the study of Galatians, and today we dive into Galatians uh, chapter 3. We get a little bit further into it. Now, this letter is about living free, living free from yourself, from your sin, from your shame, and from religion. Uh, Here's the background. The Apostle Paul planted some churches in the area of Galatia, which is where modern-day Turkey is today. He planted them, encouraged them, lived with them for a while, and then he moved on to another place to spread the gospel and to plant churches. Well, after he left, there were some guys that came in after them. And the guys that came in after the apostle Paul and Barnabas were people that the Bible calls Judaizers. And these were people who were Christians, but yet they said that if you wanted to really be a Christian, then you had to be Jewish. That's because these were Jewish converts to Christianity trying to impose onto Christians this, this, you, this standard that you must be more Jewish to actually be saved. Now, the Galatians were basically... A bunch of mercenaries before they gave their life to Christ. They were hired warriors and they were a unique province in the Roman Empire. They had never had their hands on a Old Testament or, or the, the Torah or the Bible uh, as, as the Judaizers brought the Old Testament and said, this is what God says, now you must do this, this, and this, and this. Paul got word. He was infuriated by the fact that, that these people were coming in and calling Paul a false prophet. Now Paul is writing this letter saying, listen, hold true to the gospel that was preached. And he says, this is simply the gospel. This is the good news. He said as simple as this, that Jesus lived, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus was buried, and that he rose again to rescue us from our sin. He lays that clearly out in the very first chapter. And what he does now is he's unpacking the severity and the importance and the beauty of the gospel. And he's simply saying this, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but yet Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Because these guys were coming in and saying, now you must add to Jesus requirements. And Paul's saying, no, this is not true. So today, chapter three of this very urgent handwritten letter. Uh, and chapter three is probably the most complex of all of the chapters in this tiny little letter of six chapters. And so it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through just chapter three. So in this chapter, I like it because Paul gets a little salty. He, uh, he gets pretty agitated and he starts off right up front, um, being pretty intense. Um, in the very first verse. Now, before we jump in, I want you to imagine that you're a hired consultant to come into a company to figure out where they went wrong as they're heading towards bankruptcy. 
So you come in and you're looking through the books and you're going, oh, yes, the reason why you're, you're going into bankruptcy is because you've got all this spending, this overspending. You've got debt, just lots of debt. And then as he digs further, you find out that, well, it's not just the debt. It's also the CEO. He's incompetent and he's crooked. He is uh, corrupt. And so there's not only a debt problem, but there is a power problem. And just to come in and fix the debt issue is not going to fix the problem. You must fix the power problem because there was a power struggle that's bringing it down. This is basically the idea of Galatians chapter three. To fix this, we must fix both. The challenge of Galatians three is this, is that the gospel is more than just providing a remedy to a sin problem. The gospel provides a remedy to sin's power also. And so the gospel fixes two problems, sin's problem and sin's power issue. See, the gospel is more than a clean slate and a release from the sin, uh, the chains of your sin. Some acknowledge salvation and they go, well, I'm saved and they move on. And then they decide maybe that to live for Christ means that they have to pull themselves up by their own boots and, and struggle to become the certain kind of Christian or live a certain way. And they're like, Jesus, thank you for saving me. But now it's my responsibility to keep saved and say it to, to stay saved and, and to grow. Listen, the apostle Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not your power in which this is solved because believers don't understand this. A lot of Christians struggle to live out the power of God in their relationships and spiritual life. Always feeling guilty, struggling to find peace and satisfaction in their walk with God because they're not relying upon the power of God. They're relying on the power of themselves. See, the gospel is mercy and forgiveness and it's grace and power. The cross breaks our sin problem and sin's power with a greater power. And this is where he really nails it in Galatians 2.20 when he says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is not by my strength, by my power, but it's Christ's power, his strength. I'm not living for and by and through myself. I'm living for and through and by Christ who is in me. I live this life. I now live in the body. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life I live now is a result of what Jesus is doing in me. I walk and I live by faith and I walk and live by the faith that God is doing it in me. So with that in mind, let's jump into Galatians chapter three. Again, this is one of the most complex chapters outside of Romans. This is one of the more complex chapters. In fact, this chapter, this letter, primarily this chapter started what's known as the Protestant Reformation. It was this chapter. So let's take a look at what it says. And it's going to be a little complex, but I think you can handle it. So let's jump in. Galatians 3, 1, it says, you foolish Galatians, you got to love. You know, he, he spent the first two chapters giving him a little love. But this is the only letter in the entire New Testament that he wrote where he doesn't say anything positive about them. In all the other letters, he says, I love this about you. I love this about you. He doesn't in this one at all. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, He's writing feverishly. He's probably getting a cramp in his hand. He's like, oh, in fact, the J.B. Phillips translation says, you idiots. <laughs> Salty Paul here. 
keeping it real in the church. By the way, these letters were read in the church. Could you imagine them gathering? Hey, guys, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Gather around. Gather around. All right, Paul says, you idiots. <laughs> I was like, what? Yes, this was a letter read. I, I can imagine by this time they were embarrassed or infuriated with Paul. As Paul said, you are being foolish. J.B. Phillips says, you are idiots. Or literally, it says, oh, dear idiots. It's kind of like, oh, bless your heart. He says, who bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. What's that mean? They didn't literally meet Jesus or see Jesus. He's saying, you understood so clearly that it was as if it was a billboard in front of you, you could see Christ on the cross. It was so clearly in front of you. It was like a sign that you could see, like a giant billboard. You could see it so clearly. He says, but now it's as if somebody has cast a spell on you. Who has done this? Verse two, I would like to learn just one thing from you. He's, he's getting pretty intense. He says, just tell me, tell me something. Tell me one thing. He says, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now, whenever he says the law for the next few chapters, he's not talking about, you know, the Texas state laws or, or the United States laws or, or some man's laws. He's talking about the Old Testament, the commands and laws of the Old Testament. So it's important that you know when he references the law, he's talking about primarily the Ten Commandments. Okay. He says, did you receive the spirit by obeying the Ten Commandments or the other 600 laws mentioned in Deuteronomy and Numbers? He says, was it that? Did you receive it or by believing what you heard? By the way, this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in this whole letter. And it's going to become from here on the primary emphasis for the rest of this letter. In fact, the fruit of the spirit, the very popular passage, the, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. We're going to get to that. It's Galatians five. The whole chapter is about the spirit. This is the introduction to the discussion about specifically the work of the spirit in us. He says, the question is this, how did you receive the Holy spirit? Was it something you did? Was it something you ate? Was it, a, was it an experience? Was it a ritual? Was it a formula? Was it a prize for something that you did for God or from works? Or was it by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ at your salvation? It's a rhetorical question. He says, yes, you received the Holy Spirit by faith when you received Jesus. Galatians 3, he says it again. Are you so foolish? J.B. Phillips again says, surely you can't be so idiotic. I love that translation. He says, are you so foolish? By the way, Paul is not questioning their intelligence. He's questioning their spiritual discernment. He says, after by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He says, you received Jesus by faith. And as a result, you received the Holy Spirit by faith. And if you were drawn by the Spirit, saved by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, why in the world would you try to grow by the flesh? He says the work is all through the Spirit, by keeping religious rules, by put on you, or by the Spirit, he says. 
Verse four, have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain, he basically is saying, you know, you were persecuted when you became a follower of Christ because you believed in faith that Jesus was the Messiah and you received that and you received persecution for that. Was that in vain now, he says? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by your works, rituals, experiences, formulas of the law or by believing what you heard by faith? See, there's three people in this whole letter. There's the wise Paul, the shepherd. And then there is the wolves, the evil uh, false teachers. And then there are the sheep, and that is the uh, foolish Galatians. Uh, Galatians. And this is what's happening. There's three-way kind of conversation happening here because some of those Judaizers were still in their midst. Could you imagine having a sermon preached about you, <laughs> you know, or reading a letter where the Apostle Paul is talking about you being a false teacher in a room filled with people? Like, what if, this is the scenario, Paul preaches, leads a church to Christ, baptizes them, man, says, you're free in Christ, begins to grow them in maturity, and says, all right, I'm going to pass this on to leaders in your church, and he leaves. And so then another group of people come in and say, we're, we're preachers of the gospel too, and we're going to help you. And so they take over the church, they begin to preach false teaching in the church, and then someone says, we got a letter from Paul. And it's like, all right, well, let me, let me yeah, read it to you guys. This false preacher is in the room and he's hearing this letter as Paul is saying, that man is a false preacher. He's giving you a false teaching. I'm sure the room was intense. Who's bewitched you? And everybody's looking at each other. I think he's talking about you, pastor. If you received salvation and were filled with the spirit by faith, why would you think that growing with God is by the flesh, your efforts? Some people, when they give their life to Jesus, it's like they're saying, thanks God, and the training wheels come off. And they're out there riding their bike on their own, trying to balance their Christian life. And the father's back there saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I remember when I first learned to ride my bike, I remember so clearly because a scorpion fell on me. <laughs> I hit a tree. I was five years old, living in Texas, and I hit a tree. I was learning to ride my bike, and a scorpion fell on my bike and on my lap. I was like, ah, this is crazy. Anyhow, I remember that so clearly. And I remember teaching my girls to ride a bike. They were roughly around five years old. And I remember when they were riding, you're running alongside, and then you let them go, and then they're, you're like, yeah, yeah. Listen, there's not that moment in your Christian life. Salvation is not a training wheel experience where God says, all right, you're saved. Now you're on your own. No, the whole time, the whole time is the father to be with you through the spirit. God saved and empowered you by faith. Why would you expect to grow by pulling yourself up with your own works and efforts? See, those false teachers were using the Old Testament on those mercenaries, those former mercenaries and warriors saying, now you need to do this. Now you need to do this. Abraham says you need to be circumcised. Mo uh, Moses says you need to follow these rules and eat this certain way. So what Paul does next is he uses the scriptures that they used to preach false teaching, and now he uses it to teach them the truth. And this is Abraham's illustration. Galatians 3, 6, he goes on to say, just as Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteous, that's a quote out of Genesis 15, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. 
We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. It's in this chapter also. He goes, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. That means the world. That means anybody that's not Jewish. God was going to save and declare righteous the the rest of the world if they received it by faith. He says, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying, quote, all nations will be blessed through you. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 22. He says, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, Genesis 15, God makes a a promise to Abraham that from him, a great nation would come forth and provide forgiveness. A man would rise from that nation and provide forgiveness and salvation to the world. That man is Jesus Christ. But the problem was Abraham was old. He was old and sterile, and so was his wife. In fact, at that time, he, he was uh, pushing, pushing into his uh, upper 90s, all right? And, and God said, hey, you're going to have a baby. And by faith, it was a struggle, but by faith, Abraham said yes. Here's what happened. Two things happened at that moment in Genesis 15, when Abe trusted God, two things happened. I want you to follow this. By the way, um, justified by faith is quoted four times in the New Testament. This is how important this passage is. The first thing, two things happened when Abe trusted God. Number one is that when Abe believed God, he was credited as righteous. His faith was not his righteousness. Righteousness was the result of his faith. Now, I've got a a checkbook here. Let me explain it like this. Maybe you don't know what a check is if you're a millennial or belower. The checks were things that we used to have to write bills. And uh, this is a big checkbook, so you can see it. So this is basically a check, okay? I'm going to write this check out to, uh, hey, Byron, you're here. I'm going to write it to you, all right? And... Okay, and let's make it for a good amount. Let's let, let's make it a lot. How much? How much do you think? A thousand. Boy, you could have had anything, and you wanted a thousand. All right, so I'm gonna do one thousand dollars. Okay, gotta sign it. It's no good without a sign. Now, just <laughs> he's running up here to get it. Yeah, I'll give it to you later. I promise. All right. So this is what happened. A check was written. And it was cashed by Abe. Now, a check is not, this check is not money. This check is like, is a paper credit. It's a legal contract that means that the money will be paid. It's a, it's a contract. That's why it's got, this one's got like a fancy little, you know, uh, holograph kind of looking thing on here. And it's got radic numbers, which I scratched out because... There was something that happened this week. I don't want the same thing to happen to me. So uh, you write the check, and, and this is not money. So I'm a, if I were to give this to Byron, I'd say, hey, Byron here, this is not money, but he can take it to the bank. And as long as there's money in the account in which this is written, he'll be able to cash it or deposit it because this acts as like credit. It's a contract of credit. And this is what happened with Abraham. I want you to follow what's happening here. This paper is used to collect a debt. The paper covers the debt. Abraham wrote a check called Faith that day. When he believed God, he wrote a check. 
Jesus ultimately paid for that check through the cross of Jesus Christ with his blood. Now, by faith, it is credited to anyone who believes in that faith. A similar faith in the faith of Jesus. And by our faith, it is credited to our spiritual account. Now, due to false teaching, they were asking, what about circumcision? Well, listen, circumcision didn't happen until 14 years after this event. God told Abraham, you're righteous. And then he told him to do circumcision 14 years later. He was declared righteous before circumcision. Well, what about the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments? Man, that's God's law. We got to follow that, right? Well, they say we must follow all of the Ten Commandments and the food and the... Listen, Moses came 500 years after this encounter with Abraham and God. God called Abraham righteous 500 years before the law was written. So what Paul is saying, listen, that check of righteousness that was written and cashed by Jesus, covered and paid in full, happened long before the circumcision and the law. Because it is not the circumcision nor the law that called Abraham righteous. It was his faith and faith alone. Paul goes on. He goes back to day one. He said, man, Abe didn't close the deal with efforts. It's not circumcision. It's not the law. It's faith. Here's the second thing that happened when Abe trusted God that day. And I'm going to come back to the check in a minute. Today's message is called cash that check because I want you to cash the check that has been written it's got your name on it, but you must by faith cash that check. I'm going to explain that in a minute. The second thing that happened with Abraham when he trusted God is this. When Abe believed his old body was able to produce fruit. What's that mean? That means his old sterile body and his old sterile wife had a baby. Because they trusted God and believed by faith, God declared him righteous and gave him fruit. I want you to understand, this is what Paul is saying. In the same way, when we believe in Jesus, we are credited as righteous and we are given power to bear spiritual fruit. After he called Abraham righteous, he did something that is bizarre. It's very strange. It's in, uh, you can read it yourself. It's in Genesis 15. I'm going to give you kind of the, uh, the quick rundown of it. Something amazing and strange happened right after making this promise to Abraham, right after God said, your faith has made you righteous. In Genesis 15, God instructs Abraham to get a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, and to cut them all in half and to arrange them in two rows uh, with their blood spilling into each other. All right. Now, why in the world would he take, you know, just imagine all these animals, you know, cows and goats and, and uh, what else did he have? A ram and of course these birds. Now the Bible even says that vultures were coming in, birds of prey were coming in to pick at him and he kept having to shoo them away. That's how bloody this whole thing was. So he's got this blood flowing from the animals why would he do that? Well, in ancient times, there was a blood covenant, and this was how a blood covenant was done in ancient times. The two parties that were agreeing upon a purchase or a promise or a covenant before each other, what they would do is they would each sacrifice the very best from each of their herds, 
and cut them in half, and they would take turns walking through the middle of those bloody animals. And then when they walked through those bloody animals, the blood would get on their robes. And that covenant was written in blood. And it was a way of saying, and they were to declare this when they walked through, may the same happen to me if I don't keep this covenant. All right, pretty intense, intense picture. That was a, a, a blood covenant in ancient times. And this is what's happening right here in Genesis 15. God is going to have a covenant, blood covenant with Abraham. So he says, cut them in half and get ready. Well, verse 15, it goes on to say, just when it came time for Abraham to traditionally walk through the blood, Genesis 15 says that God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And then the Bible says that God himself walked through the animal half, the blood that was spilled, walked through it himself. And when Abraham woke up, it was, it was God saying, listen, I alone will be responsible to uphold your side and my side of this covenant. He was showing that this did not rely upon Abraham in any way but entirely on God. God would accomplish it. And at 89 years old, Abraham did have a son that would bring Jesus to the world eventually. See, this was God's promise to Abraham. If you will trust in me, you will be declared righteous. And if you trust in me, your life will bear fruit. And this is not your responsibility to make it happen. This is all on me to make it happen. And Paul is saying, what part of that was accomplished by Abraham? Other than faith. What did Abraham do to make it happen other than faith? It was all God and faith in what God was doing. All Abe did was trust what God said and walk in it. See, the error of Galatians and many Christians today is the same. What starts with faith in the gospel becomes faith in ourselves to change. We think, yes, God, I had the faith that you would save me. But many of you, you don't have the faith that God will produce fruit in your life and to produce holiness in your life. This is what Paul is saying. Is that the gospel doesn't just break sin's Power, but it also breaks sin's, uh, uh, sin's uh, you know, hold on us, but also sin's power with a greater power. See, Jesus plus other things is everywhere. We see it all the time. Here's some example. In liturgical churches, um, they will add ceremonies and sacraments and baptisms as requirements to your confirmation or salvation. Or you have mainstream churches, mainstream denominations even. They'll add rules and dress codes, ties and haircuts, external conformity. If you want to be one of us, you can't get tattoos or, or you can't wear your hair long or, or you, you can't wear shorts. I grew up in a church where you couldn't wear shorts in church, where I went to Bible school where I couldn't, my hair couldn't touch the collar. They were adding external conformity to the gospel and then it even happens in progressive churches that aren't preaching the gospel because they'll preach, feed the poor, justice work, adopt agendas. If you're a true Christian, you'll promote and support this agenda or political party. 
And then megachurches, what they tend to do is they turn the gospel into principles and, and practical steps like five steps to a better marriage or three steps to overcoming temptation. It's like six ways to become a better father, whatever. It's like it, they, they practicalize the gospel so much that it's lost some of its power. Now, none of these things that they are inviting people to participate in are bad in and of themselves. They're just not the gospel. But a lot of churches, this is what they turn the gospel into or trade the gospel for. Why do they do that? Because it's easier to comprehend a rule than to trust that by faith, God is working in you. It's easier, easier to get someone to conform to a standard than it is to trust that God is convicting them by his spirit. It's easier to communicate than to get a hold of this abstract idea that the gospel breaks sin's power. How do you explain that? I don't know how. Paul's going to try in the next few chapters when we get to the fruit of the Spirit, he's going to say this is the fruit of that Spirit working in you. He's not saying these are the rules. He's saying this is what happens when it happens. But it's a mystery of how it happens. It's easier to communicate principles, rules, and rituals because it comforts us. It makes us feel like, well, I can see change. It's hard to see sometimes what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. It's hard to see what the Spirit of God is doing in other people's lives. You know, you see someone who's struggling in sin, you know, think, man, they need God. Well, maybe they have God. They're just struggling with obeying what God is calling them and convicting them about. It's easier to find comfort in external things than it is what God is. Now, eventually the inside will change the outside, but it's not the other way around. So talking about the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, particularly Galatians 3.10, Paul says this. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law for salvation, trying to be a perfect person, trying to obey all the laws of God perfectly, he says, are under a curse. What? That means you're condemned. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's from Deuteronomy 27, 26. He says, listen, you would have to be perfect. If you lived by the law, you have to be perfect, but none of us are perfect. So guess what? You're cursed, you're condemned. You're judged because none of us are perfect. He says, so the works of the law, if that's how you want to live, you'll be eternally condemned because you can't be perfect. He goes on to say, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified or made right, declared right before God because the righteous will live by faith. Again, they're quoting and again, he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. This is quoted four times in the Bible. The law is not based on faith, he says. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18. He's saying, listen, and I love how he uses God's word to preach to the Galatians. He says, listen, if you think that you can be a good enough person to ever be righteous, you are mistaken because no one can live up to that. That's why he says in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short. You've just missed the mark. Some of you buy a lot, some of you buy a little, but we've all missed the mark. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standards. That's the law. But you say, well, what Jesus in Matthew 22 you know, he says something really interesting. Now, I want you to know that 
You might be thinking, well, I thought the Old Testament was God's word and, and that it is good. It seems like Paul is dissing on the Old Testament. He's not dissing on the Old Testament. And we're going to explain this next week, why God gave us the Old Testament if it's not what we're to pursue. All right, this is a tricky thing, all right? But I want to point out, we're going to get there next week, but I want to point out what Jesus said in Matthew 22, because this is a lot of times where people go back. And I preached on this passage. It's the greatest uh, New Testament passage uh, for, um, for the greatest verses. Jesus was asked, of all the law and the prophets, sum up the greatest. I mean, there's 630, all right, laws above the Ten Commandments. So there's, you know, a lot of laws. So they said, Jesus, which one is the most important ones? Verse 37 in Matthew 22, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command of the law, all right, of the commandments. And the second is like it or is equal. Love your neighbor as yourself. All, verse 40, all of the law and the prophets hang, some translations are summed up, they hang on these two commands. Jesus summed up the entire Old Testament in two verses. Love the Lord your God more than anything else and love others as much as you love yourself. By the way, footnote, you'll never learn how to love others until you learn to love yourself the way that God sees you. But he says, this is the entire Old Testament. Love God, love others. That's it. And I love how simple it is. This is the entire law summed up, and this is amazing. But listen to my words. As amazing as that is, that is not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news is not love God and love others. That's the message of the Old Testament, which is something we should strive to live for. But what it does is it tells us that I'm terrible at putting God first in my life. And that I'm terrible at loving others the way that I should. See, this command, Jesus says, this is the entire Old Testament. Love God more than anything. Love others more than uh, you love yourself. But let's be honest. I don't love God like I should. And I don't treat others like I should. And that is called sin. So when we see the Old Testament... It reminds us this is God's standard. Love God more than anybody and love others as much or better than yourself. And it doesn't save us. It's not the gospel. It's the standard. And the Old Testament says, guess what? You don't love God very well. well let's all be, let's be honest. We don't. We put our family, we put our careers, put our jobs, put all kinds of things above God. And we don't treat others right. We are very selfish people. We tend to walk on people, abuse people, cut people off, or hold unforgiveness in our heart. See, the law identifies the problem. We're going to talk about this next week. See, the law says we fail at loving God and others, which brings judgment. The gospel says God still loves you and through Jesus brings mercy. The law says you did your best, but failed. And the gospel says God sends his best, Jesus and you win. See, the law proves that we're not good at being righteous. The gospel proves God does for you what you can't do for yourself. God himself, Jesus Christ, walked through that sacrifice 
Man, listen to this. As God himself walked through that sacrifice, that's known as a theophany. And Colossians 1 and 2 in Ephesians tells us that Jesus is the manifestation of the Godhead bodily. So that theophany, God in the flesh, was a Christophany, Christ in the flesh. And when Jesus walked through the blood sacrifice that Abraham laid before him, and that blood got on the very theophany or Christophany of Christ. The same thing happens at the cross. Jesus Christ himself walked through the sacrifice of the cross. And just as he said to Abraham, listen, I got you. It's not your work. It's my work. Jesus says the same to you today. I got you. This is all on me. This is all on me. This passage starts one of the greatest movements on the earth, the Protestant Reformation. The leader of that movement, Martin Luther, said this. He says, the law says do, but it's never done. The gospel says believe, for it's already done. Next week, we're going to dig a little bit more into why God even gave us the Old Testament, if it's called a curse so much. But Paul is trying to tell us that there's a power that cannot be accessed through rules and rituals or the law. The Old Testament is like railroad tracks. If you were to read the Old Testament, it's like, it's like walking railroad tracks. They lay out the way that you should go, but they are powerless by themselves to move the freight along the tracks. Only the engine of the Holy Spirit has the power to move you along the route of God's plan for your life. When you're struggling in your marriage, listen, you don't need five tips on how to get along. You need the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit. When you are struggling with sin, you don't need three steps to running or avoiding sin. You need the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit. You see, it's easier to give the steps in the practicum. It's easier to change someone's external than it is to allow the gospel's power, the Holy Spirit, to work on the internal. Actually, it's a sign of immaturity. You have more rules for the child, but as they grow up, you hope that those rules are not in, you know, mandatory, but the rules now are written on their heart. You hope as they get older, that's what Hebrews is all about. Listen, the Old Testament is like spiritual children, but we live now under the grace and the maturity of Jesus. Romans 8, 11 says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Whoa, think about that. The same spirit that quickened his dead body in the grave lives in you. That's the spirit of Christ in you. That's the spirit of the gospel that he's talking about. You have in you all the power you need in Jesus to overcome sin. You're like, well, how come I'm not overcoming sin? I'll tell you why. Because you're relying upon yourself to overcome your sin rather than relying on the Spirit and responding to the work of the Spirit and yielding to the Spirit and being empowered to be able to do it by the Spirit. This is what the next couple of chapters after we get out of chapter 3 are about. God's Word, prayer, church, all these things are to help us to understand the work of the Spirit in us. Here's the next part, Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed. I love that word. That means bought, ransomed, a payment, set free. It means the check was written. Christ wrote the check. 
Jesus himself ransomed us. He set us free. The picture here is that a slave that was purchased and then set free. He ransomed us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That means he bore our sin. He bore on his shoulders the judgment and the wrath of the Father. Paid for with his blood. Listen, don't be misled. On the cross was God himself. The word son is a reference to the identity of who Jesus was in relation to the Father. They are one. They're of the same. God didn't have a baby. Jesus isn't God Jr. or God in training or the Father's Bubba. Jesus is God in the flesh. He embraced every aspect of that torment and pain. He became a curse for us. Paid for. I I wrote this in, in black ink. He played for it. He wrote the check that's credited to you by faith. If you'll cash that check, he wrote it with his own blood. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. That is right out of Deuteronomy uh, 21, 23. And uh, basically the word pole means wood or tree, which is a reference to the cross. Paul is is definitely relaying that verse. Basically in Jewish times, uh, they would hang corpses in the trees for the animals to eat and to pick at. And it was one of the most uh, disturbing things in a person's life. And for Jewish people to to desecrate a dead body was worse than a curse. It was, it was a lifelong of eternal destitution and, and, uh, and ridicule and shame for your family. So cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree is what he's referring to in that passage in Deuteronomy. And he's also saying, listen, Jesus hung on that tree, the cross. By the way, this was mentioned hundreds of years before Rome even invented persecution through crucifixion. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's the blessing of Abraham? Abraham, you are righteous. That's the blessing of Abraham. He goes on to say that through Jesus Christ, he redeemed us in order that the blessing of Abraham, righteousness, might come to the Gentiles. That's all the nations of the world through Christ Jesus, so that by faith you might receive the promise of of the spirit the holy spirit salvation and the residence of god in us received by faith so what i want to do is i want to spend just a couple of minutes giving you four highlights from this passage there's a lot of concepts here we're not going to dive into some of the concepts in this chapter are salvation which is being made right with god there's redemption uh uh, ransom and being purchased there's justification a declaration of not guilty and holy spirit regeneration that's a new birth in christ through the spirit these are all these concepts are introduced in in 13 verses but i want to give you four highlights from this passage and we're going to pick up where we left off next week with the next part. As if, if the Old Testament is so bad, why is it important for us today? And why should we read it? And why did God give it? So a couple of highlights about this from Salty Paul. Four thoughts from Salty Paul. The first one is this. Don't be an idiot. Okay? Don't be fooled. 
Don't be a fool. Don't be fooled. People can lead you astray. Don't be fooled. It's a wonder, and it's wonderful to have a soft heart and a tender heart before God. But some of you have softer heads than hearts. Some of you are too accommodating to wrong unbiblical ideas, and you don't think through to see if they are really true or not from God's word. And this is a sign of spiritual immaturity. I think of babies. You have a little baby. You're careful to put them on the ground because they will literally put everything in their mouth. Ah, pen, paper. Don't put that in your mouth. You know, we walked. uh, Well, let me tell you, set up the story. Nicole and I were watching TV when Noelle was uh, just a baby, just a couple of months old. Actually, she must have been a little older than that. She was in the crawling stage, okay? She was in the crawling stage, and, and it, she had got out. You know, we had this little pin that we put in the, uh, this wall that we had put in the living room, and Noelle had escaped, and it was really quiet. You know, when, when it's really quiet in a room, you need to go investigate, because that's usually something's going on that shouldn't be going on. So we were watching TV, and we're like, where's Noel? It was only been a couple of minutes. And so we looked around, and we walked around the corner of the hallway, and Noel's sitting there, and she looks up, and she has all over her face, and in her hands, dog poop. And one of our dogs had little, we had a puppy, had pooped on the floor, little Max, and quite a, quite a union they've had their whole life, is uh, she had, had put his dog poo in his mouth. It's like, some of you, you do the exact same thing. Your head is so soft. You're, you're not checking biblical interpretation. You're like, well, that's for the philosophers. No, this is for every mature Christian. Search the scriptures. Be a noble Berean. Stop putting crap in your mouth. Stop putting it in your head. Stop playing with it, all right? Don't be fooled. People can lead you astray. This is a sign of spiritual immaturity if you don't follow this advice of Paul's. Number two, we are saved, filled with the Spirit, and made righteous all at once by faith. Don't be led astray. The Holy Spirit is given at your salvation, not at a later date not a later experience, not a later invitation, not a, not a later moment. You can write down Romans 8 9, and you can see it. Paul says, if you have the spirit, you're saved. If you don't have the spirit, you're not saved. He goes on to say that at the moment of salvation, we believe we are given the spirit of adoption, which gives us the ability to say, Abba, Father, meaning we are saved, filled with the spirit, and the relationship begins. And he says it here, you received the spirit of God when you believed. When you were saved, you received the spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to you as salvation. And he says, and you are declared righteous when you are saved at the moment of salvation. Not later, not after you've quit smoking and drinking and cussing. And not after you stop doing drugs and learn to read your Bible four or five times a week. If you have truly bowed the knee to Christ... And if you are truly born again, the Holy Spirit moves in and God says, you're holy. You are righteous, not based on your works, but based on my work. Now he says, as you are holy, be holy. 
But you are declared holy. That's called justification. That's called regeneration. That's called sanctification. You are set apart, made right, declared right, just as if you never sinned the moment you believed. And you are bought and owned by Jesus, not later. You are are saved, filled with the Spirit, made righteous all at once by faith. Don't be led astray. Here's the third observation from this passage. The cross of Jesus is enough. Don't be led astray. The cross of Jesus. Man, Jesus is not a stepping stone to other church experiences. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end of everything that God has for you. I grew up in a church background that emphasized the Holy Spirit probably too much. Let me explain. As much as we should walk in the Spirit, understand the power of the Spirit, and the Apostle Paul in the next couple chapters is going to talk about how to live in the Spirit. Oftentimes, we made our Christian life about the Spirit, and it is about Jesus. The Spirit is given so that we might grow in Jesus, grow in His understanding, be reminded of Jesus, be uh, to look like Jesus, to respond like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to have the call and the purpose to preach the gospel of Jesus. Verse 13, chapter 3 says, Christ alone redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. The Galatians, like a billboard, saw him on the cross. That torture, that pain, the weight of sin, he embraced. Why would Jesus embrace the pain of crucifixion? He's God. He could have laser beamed his eyes and killed every soldier. He could have pulled himself off the cross, healed himself, and said, y'all ain't worth it. It killed them all. But why did he embrace it? It says right here, for us. For us. The cross of Jesus is enough. He did it alone for us. You can't help God in your salvation. It's like the guy who looked over on an airplane and sees the guy doing this. He's just sitting in a seat trying to, he's like, what are you doing, man? He's like, what do you mean? So what are you, what are you doing? He, he looks at him and says, I'm helping. What do you, what do you mean you're helping? I'm helping fly the plane. Come on. Thinking that you can add to your salvation is like flapping your wings on a plane, thinking you're helping the flight. You're not helping, but you're killing yourself. So stop, relax, enjoy the flight of faith, rest in the grace of God, quit flapping your arms, because it is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. What he's about to say in the next couple of chapters, however, that if you are truly saved, the works of the Spirit will follow. And that's what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks in Galatians. Here's the fourth thing, and I want to end with this, and we're going to pray, and we'll be done today. Is that you can know that you are right with God right now. Don't be led astray. I've asked people, are you a Christian? I sure hope so. You know, I've asked people in our own church, are you born again? I sure hope so. I guess I'll know when I'm dead. You know, the Bible says you can know right now. Now, the Apostle Paul says you can know right now. Just as God, that theophany Christ himself said to Abraham, your righteousness has been made whole through your faith. You, by faith, can be right with God. 
through Jesus Christ. You don't have to go your whole life wondering if you're saved. You know, that's what sets true Christianity apart from the cults and world religions. World religions will strive their whole life to appease or accommodate the God or deity or the afterlife of their choice. Striving and striving and hoping and hoping they've done enough. Many cults, it's all based upon your actions and your works and how good you are, how much mission trips you do and how, how you live and if you never make a mistake and, and you're always in fear of losing your, your place with God, never truly sure. See, these are marks of a false gospel because the Apostle Paul says you can know now, right now. In fact, John the Apostle said this in 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. You can know right now. You know, this morning when I came in the door, I had my keys on me. And because I had my key on me, I was able to turn the lock and open the door. But if I didn't have my key, I'd have been locked out. And I wouldn't have been able to get in. Listen, I had the key. You know what the key to the door of salvation is? Faith. And without faith, you're locked out. But with the key of faith, salvation is yours. If you'll just take the key. If you'll take this check that's been written with the blood of Jesus. Take the check. Cash the check. Cash the check. Some of you, you, you've been living, you know, in church life, or maybe you grew up in church, and you, you've got a check. Man, you took it. You, you believed it, you know, somewhat. You have it sitting on your spiritual desk. Jesus say, no, cash in that check by faith. You can know that you are mine, he says. By faith right now in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be made right with God. Over 10 times. In these 14 verses we read, 10 times he says, by faith, by faith, in faith, through faith, when you believe, when you trust, by faith, you are made right. It is finished. Cash the check. The check has been written. Here it is. And it's a good check. It won't bounce. I want to pray for you right now. Some of you, you need to know today that you are his. So if you're watching online at a later date, this is still for you. And I want us all to just to, to pray for a moment. And if you're here right now and you're saying, I want to know right now if I am a son or daughter of God, you can know right now by faith, you can know. Let's pray. God, thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for drawing us to you by your spirit. God, thank you that you gave your one and only son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. You came yourself. And as Abraham was not responsible for his righteousness, God, either are we if we just have faith. So if you're here right now and you're saying, I'd like to know that I know that if I were to die right now, I'd be right where God, I want you to pray this prayer. And you can pray it any way you like. You don't have to pray the prayer, the prayer I pray, but say, pray something like this from your own heart. 
Just say, dear Jesus, here's my life. In your own words, however you want to say it, here's my life. Forgive me of my sin. Break the power of sin off my life. Forgive me of the sin in my life. I receive by faith what you did on the cross. Thank you, God, that you lived and you died and you rose again to rescue me from my sin. I give you thanks. You're so good. Teach me how to walk in the Spirit and to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the next few chapters, uh, when we get to chapter 4 and 5, he's going to talk about walking in the Spirit. But before we do get there, we're going to next week pick up in chapter 3, and we're going to talk about why God even gave us the Old Testament. If the Bible calls it a curse, then why are we to read it and believe it and to follow it? I'll explain that next week. Uh, you can jump in and read ahead if you like. Galatians chapter 3. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.